Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, Grant Memorial. Morning. Uh, my name is Cam. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'd like to welcome you here, whether that's in person or if you're joining us online for, from the lake or from home. And uh, as you know, uh, we are continuing our series in the Old Testament book of Genesis. Now, one of my favorite parts about studying Genesis as a church family is that we get to revisit all sorts of passages that most of us have heard many times before. All right, if you spent any time uh, in the church growing up, you have likely heard the story of God creating the world in seven days so many times that you can recite the opening line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In addition, you've likely read about the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, eating the forbidden fruit at the urging of a deceitful snake so many times that you likely have a vivid picture of the fruit in your mind. And as we move on in our series, you will hear the familiar accounts of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and of Joseph, who many of us are already picturing in a coat of many colors. You know, these are the stories from the children's Bibles and the church library VHS tapes that we can, if you've grown up in church, you can recite from memory if you had to. And perhaps even more than uh, any of these, whether you grew up in church or not, we are all familiar with the account of Noah's Ark, the 40 days and nights of rain, the animals and the rainbow. And what's so interesting to reread these stories is that we all know so well is that as we study them, we can realize that perhaps our perceptions or our understanding of certain details in the text may have been slightly off. When we really dig in deep, we can begin to see that there's, there's often more going on than the Sunday school flannel graph characters seem to let on. Over the past number of weeks, I've heard from many within our church community commenting on details that they never knew in these all-familiar stories, things that they had missed even as they read these texts multiple times throughout their lives. And I think that one of the reasons for this is that when we come across a familiar biblical account that we've known since we were children, we tend to skim the text because we feel like, you know, I already know this one. And as a result, what remains in our minds is often the early children's version of a story that we grew up with even many years later. And while some versions that we have come to know <clears throat> or remember are very similar to the biblical account, others are not quite so much. Right? Some of the versions that we have in our heads of these all-familiar stories are actually whitewashed versions of what the Bible actually teaches now, as great as it is that we teach uh, our children portions of the Bible, as many of us are recipients of, we need to be careful not to curate the text so much in an effort to make it palatable that we miss what the text is saying and carry misconceptions with us for years. And this particular passage of Scripture that we find ourselves in right now, the account of Noah and the great flood, is 
exhibit A of how we can mistake the point or the truth of a text with a sugar-coated, fictional version of historical events and cling to sentiments that don't represent the reality. For example, in my home, I have a Fisher-Price Noah's Ark set, which doesn't seem strange unless you know the actual story as told in the scriptures. Right? If you really think about it, uh, having a Noah's Ark toy would be akin to having a concentration camp play set, wouldn't it? Right? Forgive my crassness, but if Fisher-Price were, were, were focused on biblical authenticity, that set would include several drowning sinner action figures. And for every pair of saved animals, there would be bags of lifeless ones. I'm not sure how many kids would still want to play with that set. You see, that we paint baby nurseries with animals and arcs and rainbows tells me that our culture doesn't quite understand the story of the flood. You see, the story of the flood is much less adorable than it is absolutely horrible. Friends, the biblical account of Noah's Ark is a dreadful tale in which nearly every character dies. Now, I understand why we do this. And there are certainly redeemable qualities and amazing truths of God's love and grace in this narrative, but we need to be careful that when we curate these texts that we don't actually miss the gravity of the account and the point which we are meant to understand by it. And that point happens to be our worldview statement for today. God is just Evil will be extinguished, yet God is merciful through it all. Right? God is just. Evil will be extinguished, yet God is merciful through it all. I hope, uh, for those of you who have been with us over the past number of weeks, that as we've walked through this account, that these truths are what have stood out to you more than nostalgic fictional images of a smiling Noah with his arms around friendly lions and monkeys. And if you haven't been following with us over the past weeks, thus far in our study of Noah and the Great Flood, we have unpacked the state of the world at the time of the flood, right? How sin had spiraled, polluting the world with sin and violence. We have discussed the rationale for God's intervention and that his determination to put an end to the world's depravity is actually a display of love and mercy. And we have discussed God's decision to use Noah as his instrument and the way that Noah put his faith in God and obeyed his seemingly crazy commands to build a massive boat within which his family and thousands of animals would be spared from the wrath of God. Well, today, we come to uh, the account of the great deluge itself, the great flood itself. We get to the what happened of Noah's Ark, the details of the flood. We see just what it looks like for God's wrath to pour out on a world that has gone completely evil. So to do that, I invite you to open uh, in your copy of the scriptures with me to Genesis chapter 7, starting at verse 6. And buckle up, we're going to actually read a significant chunk of scripture. We're going to go from chapter 7, verse 6, all the way to the 14th verse of chapter 8. 
All right, starting in Genesis 7, verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife's and his, wife, and his son's wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 16th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great, great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings." Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark above, high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky and water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down and on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was, no, there was water over all the surface of the earth, so it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then no one knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent out the dove again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up on, from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that uh, 
we wouldn't be casual with it. Lord, and that as a result of encountering it uh, this morning, we would leave different than how we came. Amen. So the first thing that we're told in this text this morning is the when of the flood. Right? Verse 6 and 11 tell us that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. And it happened very specifically, as verse 11 points out, on the 17th day of the second month. Now, this dating serves to confirm something that we have been emphasizing since day one of our series in Genesis, that these are historical events, not simply metaphorical stories, myths, or legends. You see, metaphorical stories, legends, do not have dates attached to them, right? They start with things like once upon a time or when autumn turned to winter. But here we have a very specific historical date presented to emphasize the historicity of this event. Noah, according to the scriptures, didn't simply enter the ark. He entered the ark actually, physically, on a specific day in real time and real space. And he entered the ark, verse 7 says, with his wife, as well as his three sons and their wives, and that is all. Verse 7, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Now, as we mentioned last week, the invitation was wider than just this. Noah had preached to all who would hear for the entirety of the ark building process. It said he was a preacher of righteousness in this time. But not one soul turned to God and joined Noah and his family on the ark. Which tells us, I hope, less about Noah's preaching ability and more about the hardness of the human heart at the time. But this detail is really important to understand when we considered the flood story. You see, not only had all the people of earth rejected God, but when graciously given a final chance, another chance by God to repent, they doubled down in their rebellion against him. Church, this is one amazing truth that we know about God. While he is just, and he will judge, and he will ultimately honor the decision of individuals to reject him, He will graciously provide every opportunity for all to come to him. As we read in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in in keeping his promise in, in coming again, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. God desires all to come to him. And we can be certain that if anyone does not, it's not because God has failed to provide the opportunity. In fact, many commentators believe that verse 10 of our text today serves to emphasize this very point. Verse 10. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. What are these seven days? Well, the imagery here is of the door of the ark standing open for one final week. The ark is done, things are ready to go, and the door stands open for one more week, open for any and everyone to come in and receive the gift of salvation that God was graciously extending. But there's an end 
to grace, a point where God honors our decisions to reject him until that door comes to a close. And after seven days, it did. Well, though no other humans entered the ark with Noah's family, verse 8 and 9 tell us that pairs of every other kind of living creature came to Adam and went into the ark with him, both male and female. Now notice that in last week's text, a qualification was provided about the number of animals on the ark. And while our flannel graph uh, pictures and children's Bibles emphasize two of each kind, chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 tell us something a little bit different. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. So as we've already discussed, regarding our assumptions about familiar stories, some of us need to scratch the simple two-by-two imagery that we have in our heads and insert 14-by-14 imagery for all of the animals designated as clean. And while we haven't read yet which animals were clean and which were unclean, Noah certainly knew and packed accordingly. Now, as an aside, if Noah's clean animals are defined by the same designations as those we read in Leviticus 11, later on in the Old Testament, those who would have been represented by seven pairs rather than two would have included cattle, deer, goats, sheep, chicken, doves, and ducks, just to name a few. So if you're drawing Noah's Ark, just add a few more ducks and cows, and you should be more accurate. So yes, the unclean animals came two by two, but the clean animals came 14 by 14. And I believe that there are some kids' songs whose lyrics haven't quite accounted for this, have they? Well, once uh, all these animals, some in pairs, some in 14s, entered the Ark along with the four pairs of humans, verse 16 tells us simply... The Lord shut them in. God closed the door. You see, up until this point, besides providing the specifications, everything to do with the ark was in Noah's hands, right? He's the one who built, and he's the one who, who uh, you know, made sure that everything was set and ready to go. He's the one who followed the specifications, did the cutting, and the, if, depends on if there were, anyways won't get into all that, but he's the one who put the boat together. But our text tells us that God is the one who closed the door. He is the one who sealed Noah and his family in. And church, it's really important that we notice this. You see, this is actually a principle of salvation. The door is closed from the outside. Noah's salvation was sealed by God. And friends, so is ours. If you have come to know God, if you have received salvation through God's gift of the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, if you are in the boat, God has sealed you in from the outside. Which means, first, that you did not save yourself. Think about it. In, in, In this imagery, that huge boat that took Noah so long to build would have proven to be useless if it wasn't sealed, right? If God didn't shut the door. And in the same way, all of our works, our righteous acts, 
all of the things that we've accomplished for God don't mean anything without the gracious work of the hand of God. And secondly, just as Noah was sealed within the boat of salvation, God has sealed us in his salvation as well. Listen to Jesus in John 10, 28. He says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? In the same way that no water could snatch Noah out of the boat because he was sealed in by God, there is nothing that can take salvation away from those who are sealed and secure in Christ, our ark of salvation. As Revelation 3, 7 affirms, quite literally, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. God shut the door on the ark, and God seals our salvation too. While well, our text continues and says that with the door sealed, the floodwaters came on the earth. For 40 days and 40 nights, verse 11 says, all the springs of the deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. As our passage says, there are two sources of floodwaters here. Did you notice that? There's a massive downpour that doesn't stop for 40 days and 40 nights, and there are tidal waves erupting out of the ocean waters, right? That is, there is water from above, and there is water from below. Now, where have we seen this before? Waters from above and waters from below. Yeah, listen to the activity of God during day two of creation, back in Genesis 1. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. And so this text is referring back to God's creative work in establishing a world that could sustain life. And a part of that process was creating boundaries for the waters, Right? The, the waters above and the waters below during creation were given limits. They were restricted so that life on earth could exist. Well, here, it's like God is removing these boundaries. He's, he's unrestricting the waters above and below. And with that act, life on earth is no longer possible. Right? What we read here is sort of an anti-creation. It's like God has undone what he established in creation. And in an instant, the world becomes once again uninhabitable. Listen now, Pastor Daryl Johnson defines this moment. He says, the flood is, in the words of Gerhard von Rad, a catastrophe involving the entire cosmos. The boundary is removed and the waters break loose. Creation is allowed to sink back into chaos. Humanity is given the full implications of our desires. We wanted no boundaries, and that is what we get. As our text moves along, we realize just how much water we're talking about when those boundaries are removed. Verse 19 tells us that the waters rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. 
Right? This means that the mountains themselves were underwater by roughly 20 feet, and as the waters rose, so too did the death toll until it was final. Verse 21 to 23 are perhaps the most sobering verses in all of the scriptures. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. This, friends, is where we need to rethink things like Fisher-Price Noah's Ark toys and cartoon animals smiling two by two on nursery walls. This is the moment the only moment in human history when everything came to an end, aside from one family. Now, we aren't going to get into philosophical apologetics here. We've already discussed at length God's rationale for his actions here. Right, if you weren't here two weeks ago and want to unpack that, uh, you can check out the August 6th message on our website or our streaming platform where we explicitly address this conversation. But the quick summary is that the flood did not destroy anything that had not already destroyed itself. So the, the earth was so violent, so depraved and lacking goodness that it was a grace of God not to let it continue. Right? We, we can't picture the flood as God burning down a perfectly good house, but rather we must picture the flood as God bulldozing the rubble of a house already burned to the ground. But regardless, what we do know is that the flood was devastating. For the entire population of the world, it was total and it was complete. And it must have been a devastating year for Noah. Something that we miss here. I don't think he was smiling with the animals, watching everyone that he knew, even family, choose this end over following God. And yes, I did say long year for Noah. As verse 24 points out, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. And as we read a few verses later in Genesis 8, 13 to 14, the waters didn't dry up until the 27th day of the second month of Noah's 601st year. Church, let's do some math. When did they enter the ark? The 17th day of the second month. And when did they leave? The 27th day of the second month, just over one year later. For some of us, that's another big change from the 40 days and 40 nights or so on the ark that we were implied as we were growing up. Think about that, one whole year for Noah and his family and a ton of animals who, were either, who either hibernated or needed consistent care, we don't know, to witness Armageddon, to see the unmatched power of a just God and to come to the real realization of how lonely it is to be one of eight people left on the entire planet while they waited day after day, rocking on a boat with no land or end in sight and no hint from God about what is coming next. 
Well, all of this leads us to the first verse of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah. I'm sure that there were days as the ark was floating on this great abyss that Noah wondered if God had forgotten about them. He had been told that it would rain for 40 days and 40 nights, but not much else. When day 150 came along, or day 270, or even day 360, I wonder how Noah was feeling about God's promises. Well, even though Noah didn't hear anything from God until much later, at least in anything that we have recorded, our text tells us that God had not forgotten Noah. And God had not forgotten the animals with him. And here we see that silence from God is not the same as God not seeing us or being active in our lives. Okay, can I say that again? Silence from God is not the same as God not seeing us or being active in our lives. You see, from day one, until day 370 or whatever it ended up being, God was working and God had Noah in mind, even though Noah was simply waiting. Now notice the text doesn't say, and then God remembered Noah as if he had forgotten about him while he was sending the rain. No, God was aware the whole time, sustaining Noah and his family through the flood, even when it seemed as if he wasn't. Friends, there's an important lesson for us all here. We all have seasons where we don't feel God, right? We haven't heard from God or God hasn't answered us. We're not sure what he's doing, but we can be assured that God remembers us. Now, Psalm 23 had not yet been written when Noah was on the ark, but I'm sure that if it had been, Noah would have been reciting verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. As Noah was literally living on the seas of death, God was with him. And friends, whatever we are walking through, we must remember that God remembers us. God sees us. God is walking with us through every peak and every valley, and he is active. In fact, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 8 tell us that while Noah waited, God was in the act of recreating. You see, just as God... uh, hovered over the waters in Genesis 1, verse 2. He did the same thing here, hovering and sending a wind over the earth to dry up the waters, right? Verse 1 and 2 echo the creation narrative from chapter 1. Verse 2 mimics God's establishing of those boundaries of the waters above and below. Listen to verse 2. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of heaven had been closed, And the rain stopped falling from the sky. God puts the barriers that he had removed to flood the earth back in place. God was recreating a space for life to exist, a home for Noah and his family to repopulate the earth. We've gone from creation to uncreation to recreation as God reestablishes the boundaries within which human flourishing can happen. 
Now, we're not going to belabor the next number of verses, but as the waters recede, the ark comes to rest on the exposed tip of Mount Ararat. And Noah, finally feeling stability in his legs for the first time in a while, begins the process of determining when it was safe to exit the ark. And his method was to use a series of birds. He starts with a raven, verse 7, which may have been risky uh, as the raven was unclean and so it was perhaps one of only two left on the earth. Uh, But either way, the raven came back and forth until it didn't anymore. And the reason it didn't come back anymore is that it likely found some carcasses to feed off of on the tops of the mountains, being a carnivorous scavenger. At which point, Noah then sends a dove in verse 8, which has a predominantly uh, herbivorous diet and lives in the valleys to scout out the lower-laying land for vegetation, which it eventually finds and ultimately leaves the ark, proving to Noah that the land was able to sustain life once again. And while he doesn't exit the ark until God invites him to, as we'll see next week, Noah gets to see God's work of restoring the world unfold before his eyes, just as God had promised him over a year earlier. So those, my friends, are the details of the great flood in which God annihilated what was perpetually destroying itself so that he could provide an opportunity through Noah's family for the human race to know him and his goodness once again. Now with the last uh, few minutes here, I want to briefly address the question of historicity or the question of is there proof of the flood having actually happened? You see, just as with the creation account in Genesis that we talked about at length, there are some who advocate that the biblical flood is simply poetic. It's metaphorical or allegorical, but it's not historical. Now, we don't have time, uh, much time to spend here, just a couple minutes actually, and so this will not be exhaustive and it may border on simplistic, but it's important for us to at least understand that believing the historicity of the flood is not foolish, but is, in my opinion, backed by anthropological, geological, and theological evidence. So let's start. Again, this is going to be quick. Let's start with the anthropological evidence. And anthropological simply means the study of humans, often focused on studying cultures and practices of people throughout history and around the world. And the evidence here is found in the shared flood stories that exist in hundreds of unique cultures all over the globe in extremely isolated places. You see, in examining cultures around the world, anthropologists have found stories of a worldwide flood existing within the traditions of tribal groups on every single continent. And while certain details vary from tribe to tribe and story to story, many have shockingly similar details and features. 88% of these stories referred to a single family being saved during a great flood. 67% include animals being saved as well. In 70% of the stories, survival is due to a boat. In 57% The boat's landing place is at the top of a mountain. Many share the details of a rainbow and birds being sent out, among other details. Friends, no other story, account, or myth is as universally widespread with the same emphasis and details as the flood, which makes sense 
due to the fact that the same historical event is a part of the history of every tribe and tongue on earth. The the simple fact that the same narrative, albeit with some varying details, is itself universal, offers significant proof that the flood actually happened and that the account of it from their shared ancestors, remember all of these people would be traced back to Noah's sons, traveled with them when they were scattered all over the earth, which we'll read about in chapter 11. The reason every culture can trace their ancestors to a great flood is that every culture comes from the same ancestry as a result of that very flood. This is a phenomenon that has no explanation if the flood didn't actually happen. Each culture didn't coincidentally, simultaneously create stunningly similar fictional narratives unbeknownst to each other. Secondly, there's a collection of geological evidence for a worldwide flood, and I will say that this could be an entire sermon or two of itself, but here are just a couple of quick evidences of a global, global flood. One proof is the existence of marine fossils in the highest mountains on the earth. From the Grand Canyon to the Himalayas, marine creatures have been, fo- have been fossilized, fossilized at altitudes they would only ever have reached if there was a global flood that lifted the waters up to these great heights. Another proof is the existence of fossil graveyards all over the world, where the fossil records indicate rapid and simultaneous death across species from land animals to sea creatures, all preserved under conditions that beg for an explanation like a single catastrophic flood. In addition to the fossil graveyards, there also exist giant deposits of animal bones all around the world where bones are intermixed among species which would not have lived together, whose only explanation is a shared and simultaneous catastrophic end. Further to that, most of these fossil graveyards are found at high altitudes on isolated hills as if animals were climbing higher and higher to escape the rising floodwaters before they died. And there are many sites like this from France to Italy to Nebraska and many others, each with an incredible story and an incredible amount of bones. Now, we could go on and bring up the estimated 5 million mammoths in Siberia that likely perished young and old all at once with no explanation. We could talk about the existence of large inland bodies of water known as fossil lakes that scientists struggle to explain with any consistency. But the reality is that the earth does contain mysteries like this that are straightforwardly explained by a global flood of this magnitude. Now, again, this is a simplistic overview, about three minutes worth, and there are smart people who see geological evidence as suggesting something else. So while a simple geological discussion on a Sunday morning doesn't categorically prove the flood, it certainly doesn't disprove it and hints strongly in several places that Noah's flood is historical. And finally, we as believers have theological evidence of the flood's historicity. First of all, the language of the flood is not metaphorical, right? There are dates and names and places. And the rest of the Bible also presents the flood to be true, even beyond the language of the flood narrative itself. 
First of all, Jesus himself spoke of the flood having been a historical event. Matthew 24, 38 to 39. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. To Jesus, this is a historical happening. The Apostle Paul, in outlining historical carriers of the faith, said, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Hebrews eleven seven. The Apostle Peter speaks of the historical reality of the flood when he talks about those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while an ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. 1 Peter three twenty. Church, if we believe that Jesus, that Paul, that Peter know what they are talking about, that the authors of the Bible are to be trusted, we need to affirm the historicity of the flood as well. And that, church, is what makes this account so important to take seriously. It was real. It was historical. It wasn't in 3D or a cartoon, or plastic. Real people chose to reject God, finding their end in a devastating flood outside of a relationship with God. And that isn't very cute when you think about it. In church, the scriptures tell us that another day is coming when the doors will be closed again, where God will honor the decisions of real people who choose to reject him until the very end, and they will find the same fate as the unspoken characters in this flood narrative. And so in the meantime, church, while we wait for that day, let's take this story and what it points toward seriously. It's our job to team with God in showing the world his love, his joy, his peace, inviting as Noah tried to anyone and everyone to enter into salvation so that when the doors are closed, that all could join in on that day and celebrate that just as he did with Noah, that the Lord has remembered us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Even really difficult texts. But God, I pray that we would be people who take your word so seriously that it moves us to action. That we don't just shake it off and go, oh yeah, I didn't know that story. Or, wow, I didn't know that about that story before until, and then we just walk off. Lord, help us to take your word so seriously that it moves us to action. May there be people who run into your ark of salvation because we have invited them, because we have challenged them, because we have been faithful to preach righteousness like your servant Noah. God, we thank you that you provided that boat for that one family and that you give each and every one of our families the opportunity to know you and to find salvation in your son as well these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch. <laughs>